bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the March 1st, 2022 podcast. Today, we're going to talk about something that has received quite a bit of attention recently, inflation, or more accurately, the effects of inflation. If you follow the headlines, you know that inflation is at the highest rate in nearly 40 years. Their year-over-year increase in the Consumer Price Index for January, a common measure of inflation, was 7.5%. That's the highest rate for any month since June of 1982. This according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The increase in the CPI for the month of January alone was 0.84%. That's the increase in January from December. This is an increase that translates into a whopping 10.4% on an annualized basis. Now, obviously I don't think that's what the current inflation rate is. And there's a variety of factors why December to January might go up higher than the average, but that is a pretty substantial uh, increase. Now we don't know if this high year over year inflation is gonna continue for the next few years, or if what we're actually witnessing is a temporary increase that may begin to wane in the late summer into early fall. One thing we do know is that the inflation rate for calendar year 2021 was 7%, and that was the highest for any year since the loan housing tax credit was enacted. I'll say that again. That was the highest rate of inflation for any year since the loan housing tax credit was enacted. Actually, before 2021, And since the Great Recession, the actual year-over-year inflation rate was consistently below 3.75%, with an average inflation rate of 1.65%, which basically means the January year-over-year inflation rate was more than double the peak uh, since the Great Recession. Now, I share these historical dates and inflation rates to emphasize that we are in the midst of inflation rates that have never been experienced by the long housing cash credit community before. Hence the focus of this week's podcast, which will be how an increase in inflation affects the development, financing, and operations of low-income housing cash credit properties. Now, the genesis of this podcast, as for many podcasts, is what we're hearing from our clients, from developers, investors, underwriters, lenders, syndicators, property managers, and many others. They're asking us how inflation will affect their properties how it'll affect those properties already in service, those under construction, and those still in pre-development. And then they also wanna know what the impact of inflation will be on their residents. It will lead to rising rents, will it also lead to rising incomes? As I said earlier, we don't know what the rate of inflation will be in the future. Will it rise even more? Will it fall? Will it stay in the current range? I'm certainly hoping that this podcast uh, won't have a long shelf life and we will have inflation that gets back to more traditional levels of more recent years. But high inflation does affect virtually every area of affordable housing development operations with the higher the rate, the greater the effect. So we do need to address this issue and plan in the event that this inflation is more enduring. Now, this week's podcast is also an extension of my March column in the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits, which addresses the possible effects 
of inflation on affordable housing. I will share a link to my column if you're interested in further reading. Now, here are two key points that are gonna be part of today's discussion. First, inflation hits development costs and operating expenses immediately or almost immediately. If you're building, you know that construction costs have increased greatly in the past year plus. And if you're operating a property, you also know that many of your operating expenses have increased significantly. Now, the second key point of this podcast is that while inflation does generally increase many financing sources uh, and operating revenue, those increases generally take a year or more to be realized. So basically costs go up, expenses go up first, additional financing sources and operating revenue come a little bit later. Now to discuss this very timely topic, I have my partner Blair Kenser joining me today. Blair works out of our Washington DC office and co-leads the company's Government Consulting and Valuation Advisory Services Group, or GoVal. Blair specializes in market analysis and appraisal and a variety of incentives, and is our in-house expert on all things data and what they mean. In today's podcast, we'll discuss how inflation affects or might affect development costs, financing sources, operating expenses, and property revenue. As such, our discussion will be separated into these four key areas. Once again, development cost, correlated financing sources, operating expenses, and property revenue. Now, the effect of high inflation on localizing tax credit development and operations is a multi-dimensional and interconnected issue. I say that because this podcast isn't going to say exactly what all those interactions are going to be. It's really intended to be the start of a discussion, to highlight some of the interconnectivities to be aware of, and also to ask our listeners to share more of what they're seeing. So as you can see from this intro, there's a lot to discuss. So if you're ready, let's get started. Blair, welcome back to Tax Credit Tuesday. Thanks, Mike. It's, it's good to be back. So let's start today's discussion by talking about the areas where we see inflation affecting the operations and development first. Uh, and as I noted in the introduction, uh, most properties have a development phase and then they have the operating phase. And then within the development phase, developers have to estimate project costs and the sources of financing to fund those costs. You know, your classic sources and uses, uses and sources. And then during the operating phase, developers have to budget and project annual revenues uh, and their annual expenses, income and expenses. So I figured we'd start with the development costs, which is an area that is the first place that many stakeholders will see the effects of inflation and potentially in, in absolute and nominal dollar amounts, will see the greater uh, impact. Now in my column in the Nervic Journal of Tax Credits, I shared that building materials increased by more than 14% in 2021 and that the construction industry is facing a worker shortage. So Blair, you speak with a lot of people and who work in this world every day. What are you seeing in terms of inflationary impacts on development costs? Thanks, Mike. First, I wanna focus on that, that 14% increase in construction costs because that's what I'm hearing a, a lot about from my clients. They, they're very focused on that, but, but when they compare that to CPI, I sometimes think we, we lose a little bit of the, the discussion because you know, CPI is a, a broad measure of inflation. 
Um, often they say it's a basket of goods. You know, currently inflation could be driven by food prices and used car prices and energy prices. However, apartment developers aren't really focused on food prices and used car prices. Um, you know, they're more focused on the construction. And so that's why you get that little bit of disconnect between the 14% increase in construction costs. You know, one difference is, and it's a large one, it's dramatic increase in lumber prices. That increase began before COVID and be, before we see this significant increase in, in CPI. And I think uh, lumber costs are the poster child of supply chain disruption. Prior to the, the pandemic, some of my clients, you know, saw uh, lumber prices going up and they saw a decrease in imports from Canada as being a possible reason for that because of tariff issues. And then COVID hit. We do some work in Maine. I'm familiar with that geography. And when you talk to developers up there, you know, they talk about, you know, timber crews are, are small and one guy goes or one man or woman goes sick, that crew shuts down. And so you have less supply coming out of the forest themselves because of COVID. And then, you know, the lumber gets to the mill, to the lumber yard of the milling, and they have uh they've had problems wrestling with COVID. Um, and then finally, it has to be delivered. And that's the ultimate in supply chain problem. So it, it, lumber really shows us how this is a multifaceted and a long-term, long-term being past three years issue. And then, you know, you mentioned this in your article, Shannon, one of our clients, Shannon Tudor, tells a great story um, about his when he was developing a property in Kentucky, he actually had trouble getting enough appliances and he had to start going around from store to store to, to buy appliances at increasing costs every time, every store he went to. So it's not just lumber, it's not just payroll, which it is of course for both, but it's almost every aspect. And then I start thinking about the future, Mike, and I think, okay, so what, what's next? How about land prices? I hear some of my clients starting to, I don't wanna use the word complain, but let's just say discuss. Uh, the impact of, of land prices, um, because you know that has a multi-layered effect on on tax credit development because of the basis issue. So that's what I'm hearing from my clients is, you know, the, they love to go back to the lumber discussion because it's so clear, and then they layer that on top of, but hey, it's not just lumber; it's appliances, and then they say, but what about land prices, Blair? What are you seeing there? Yeah, and then steel and sort of all the others. So it's definitely a complex uh, question. And as I noted, that is an area where you see inflation hitting the cost first and affecting the budgets first, and then also leads to you know, challenges in getting estimates uh, when you're going in and applying for a tax credit award and the rest, because how firm uh, is your construction cost estimate, uh, you know, given when you'll actually apply for the award versus get the award and then actually start construction. But let's not go into all those other details. There's a lot of uh, nuances and areas that we could sort of dig down. But I did want to talk about the other area where loan-consuming tax credit developers and property managers you know, see the more immediate uh, effect of inflation. And that has to do with the operating expense side for those properties that are obviously in operations, as well as for those properties under development that have to project out what their operating expenses are going to be when they're sizing up the loan and determining a financial feasibility. So as you talk with developers and property managers, uh, what are you hearing about operating expenses? Well, I think you, you make the point earlier that inflation is going to impact all of these categories. And I think what I'm hearing is it's, it is going to affect all of these categories, but it's at a different pace for each one. Um, and then going back to my point about the lumber, you know, we've seen increases that predate 
the this inflationary period, particularly with insurance and particularly with repairs and maintenance. So there, those past increases are going to be exacerbated by increases in inflation. Uh, inflation is going to impact it differently. Refer, referring back to my point about CPI being a broad measure, it, again, it's about stuff. And sometimes I think about inflation as being, it's going to more directly impact the purchases of stuff first, and then wages and payroll and insurance secondly. I think we can look at the repairs and maintenance. You're going to see the inflation issue impact that more quickly because that's where you're buying stuff. That's where you're buying paint. That's where you are buying lumber sometimes for repairs or doors or appliances, as we've mentioned. But you're going to see a more filtered impact when it comes to payroll and taxes and utilities. Um, it's definitely a multivariable equation. And one, one thing we saw in the last recession, the Great Recession versus this current COVID economic turmoil, is that there, there are going to be greater efficiencies. You know, we do learn during periods of, of recession. Um, and one thing I heard, you know, after the Great Recession, one thing I've heard recently in this period is that we've learned how to be more efficient. So it's going to be a multivariable equation where we are going to see some increases because of direct inflation, but we're also going to see some savings that we're going to be able to reap because we've learned. And I find that encouraging and confounding at the same time. So you did mention how the inflation ends up affecting different uh, expenses on a different timeline. Maybe you could share some of those expenses that see a more immediate uh, effect from inflation and some of those expenses that might be a little bit more delayed in terms of when those effects of inflation flow through to the operating expense side. Sure. And I think the first one that comes to mind is the repairs and maintenance. As I said, that's stuff, you know, that's tools, that's equipment, paint and, and cleaning supplies, yeah. that kind of thing. I think uh, payroll is going to be one that it will be affected, but it will be a lag because there is going to be a lag between um, inflation and then people achieving and, and obtaining raises. I think utilities. Um, most utilities have to be increased through a utility commission. So you're not going to see as quick of an increase there. Um, clearly, right now, we're in an oil shock. Heating oil is up 70 cents year to date. That's a significant increase. And a lot of properties in Vermont and Maine heat with oil. Um, that's a significant increase. But nationally, again, we're talking about local versus national. Nationally, nationally most properties heat with natural gas. And going back to 2009, gas prices have been very stable. Um, that's concurrent with the robust uh, supply gains from fracking. Um, I'm not going to say that's causal, but it's very concurrent. It's very obvious. Um, so, you know, you may, we may need to see more sustained inflation to really affect that natural gas pricing because of that stability. Again, uh, speaking of electricity, or speaking about le electricity, since 2008, it's only increased about 1% per annum. Again, the cheaper gas has played a role in that, as has the increased in, in increase in renewables. So right now, we're looking at 20% of electricity generation is from renewables. So there may be that would be one of those impacts that might be a little bit longer term as we watch that unfold. I think again, another one that could be longer term is property taxes. Fundamentally, property tax is a function of your assessment times millage rate. Properties do assess annually, and you could see increases next year or the year after in your assessment, a lot of states do not assess annually. And you may have a longer delay on an increased assessment. The millage, some municipalities 
facing increased cost of goods and payroll may increase a millage rate significantly. But again, that's a very difficult thing to do politically, but also it's something that would be delayed because millage rates that I'm paying today have been decided in previous right. years. So thanks for that discussion of the, the two areas. When I think about the impact of inflation, get hit first, which are negative from the standpoint of operating and developing affordable housing being development costs, you know, see a pretty immediate effect from inflation and the operating expenses seeing a pretty immediate uh, effect of inflation. And I do appreciate your pointing out that, you know, my intro, I talk about CPI, but I'm not sure to what extent developers, when they're looking at their construction costs and rush, really care what CPI is. <laughs> they care about what the uh, inflation is with respect to the materials they need and wage rates and the rest, which, as you point out, are notably different. And then on operating expenses, similarly, it's not so much what CPI is as much as what's the inflation rate with the individual categories uh, of expenses. But I did want to switch now to the sources side of the development budget and the operating revenue side of uh, rental property. And let's start with the sources. And to the extent that we do have ongoing inflation at a high rate, when I think about low income tax credit financing, I always think about three major buckets. I think of in terms of sources of uh, revenue, sources of funds to finance the development and lease up. And they are, of course, the equity from the tax credits, the foundation. Uh, there's also debt. Uh, hard debt, if you will, debt that can be borrowed based upon the uh, net operating income stream being projected. And then the third category is the soft financing, you know, that additional financing needed from government and other agencies to have enough sources to fund the development. And maybe you could share, maybe you could talk about each of those three categories and how you see inflation affecting them. Well, it's interesting the way I look at it is kind of in descending order. First first lending, then the equity, and then the soft financing. But certainly inflation translate into higher cost of funds, meaning higher interest rates and lower tax credit equity prices. Again, the timing might be delayed as interest rates and equity prices will react to inflation less directly. There will be some delay there, but there, there could be some significant pinching of a sources for a developer. Let me um, just might, interject there that one thing sure. that is also interesting with respect to this whole inflation is your operating expenses on an annual basis, your development costs on an annual basis are really based upon current inflation mm -hmm. and your debt levels and your equity pricing is really based on projected inflation. And there can be pretty different views as to is this, uh, what's the long-term view of inflation? Maybe what's the long-term 10-year treasury? How's it changing versus what's the one-year annual rate? And it's interesting to think about the debt and equity being a little bit more muted in the effects to the extent that the markets believe this is a more temporary amount of inflation, but to the extent that markets start to believe this inflation is more endemic, then you would see a more a stronger effect. Anyways, I just wanted to point that out. Please uh, continue. I think it's a great point. You know, the more I, I was kidding you earlier that I was in college and graduate school in the late 80s, and we talked a lot about inflation then. And, and one of my buddies and I were talking about this podcast. And he said, Blair, we haven't talked about inflation in 10 years, 20 years. He's like, I, I had to go back and look at some of my old notes about it to, to really, you know, refresh my memory what it was, what it was like. But, but and his point was, as your point is that, is this a price correction? Are we simply in a 
very noisy period with a lot of price corrections happening at one point in time, um, or are we watching the devaluation of currency over a longer period? I don't know. My friend didn't know, but it's a fun topic, at least for weird people like me. Um, but the, one of the points I was going to make, and I think you, actually you made it in your article, is that you know 100 basis point rise in interest rates um, declines proceed borrowing proceeds about about 10 percent. So there is a direct relationship to from a higher interest rate and what you're going to have on your your capital stack, um, and I think that's an important thing to to keep in mind. Then I'm going to also say, but this is a real iterative process because at the same time you may have a more robust NOI that you can show because you've had some increases in, in, in re revenue that maybe exceed your costs. So it's a, it's a multivariable equation and it's a lot of moving parts and the moving parts that I don't want to try to predict. So it, it's the, it, it is a conundrum at times. And then going to that final part, that, that soft, that soft funding, that so, the, the, the soft sources, um, clearly in an inflationary era, we're going to see more sources. We're going to see more availability of funds to local governments and, and state governments. I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, will those additional funding source, resources, will they be allocated to housing, um, to affordable housing? And how much of a delay will we see? I think that's one thing we're going to have to watch because we know that there's the, the amount of private activity allocation, the amount of credits that definitely are impacted by an inflation factor. So I think that's something to, to watch and to pay attention to as well. It is uh, interesting to think about on the equity financing side of tax credit properties that if you're financing with 4% uh, credits, I mean, there you actually do see a pretty immediate effect <laughs> in terms of additional sources in the sense that the 4% credits aren't capped, that the bond allocation is capped, and you have to finance 50%, more than 50% of your project with private activity bonds. So you have to be careful with cost increases causing you to need larger bond allocations in states as a consequence, maybe won't be able to allocate to quite as many transactions and quite as many developments. But the properties themselves, as they have these higher costs, do get the 4% credit on those uh, higher eligible basis related costs. Obviously, a 4% credit doesn't cover all the increasing costs. So it's you can't make it up in volume. Uh, <laughs> but it is additive. And it is a, a one of the few ways where I think on the resource side, it's a fairly direct, you know, effect in terms of additional uh, revenues. I'd also note that on the, I made the comment that the, you know, states may not be able to do quite as many transactions because more bonds have to go to a given one. There is a, a CPI adjustment, a cost of living adjustment for the amounts of bonds that go to state agencies. So they will on a delayed basis, <laughs> on a one year sort of delayed basis, see additional bond volume authority. And then the same thing happens with the 9% credits. They would see additional credits based upon the inflation factor. Historically, the inflation factor hasn't generated as much because inflation factor has been lower, but it would lead to additional increases uh, in credits that states would have, once again, on a delayed basis. So you know, there's a lot of variables on the sources side. Developers and underwriters and rest will need to be taking into account. It probably also demonstrates how important financial forecasts are and stressing financial forecasts. Uh, and I do know that one area where I think this uh, podcast is going to be helpful is for you know those that are underwriting transactions to think of different additional stresses to run so that they're they know that during the whole development phase through lease up, you know, depending upon what the rate of inflation is, that the project can uh, withstand the stresses of a reasonable range 
of inflation in the coming months. But let's uh, talk now about the, we talked about the sources for the development phase. Now let's talk about revenue, the operating revenue for properties, either those that are development when you're projecting out what your property revenue is, as well as you know existing uh, properties. And just to sort of level set for the listeners, uh, many of you will know this already, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, rent and income limits are released once a year by HUD around April 1st. And these rent and income limits are what are used in order to determine the uh, maximum rents that can be charged on a tax credit property. So the revenues themselves, because these releases come out once a year, you know that you're not going to see the impact of inflation, at least until those numbers are released uh, the following April 1st. So that's why when I mentioned there's a delay in revenue, well, that clearly there's a delay because of the time it takes for the government to release the updated income and rent numbers. Now I'd note that it's a little bit more nuanced in terms of how inflation actually affects those limits because those, in terms of calculating the maximum uh, income levels and corresponding rent levels, uh, HUD starts with nominal income estimates, area median income estimates, nominal amounts that are three years old. Basically, you know, the most current data that HUD has that they can use is three years old. So then they basically take three-year-old income data, and then they do adjust it forward based upon the consumer price index or CPI estimates. So what that means, for example, is for the 2022 rent income limits that we you know, expect to be out in the next couple months, uh, they'll be based on the 2019 American Community Survey data. And then that 2019 data gets adjusted by the CPI. So that's how that, so that's a little bit blurry there. And Blair, Blair maybe you can uh, help unpack my overview <laughs> uh, to the listeners. Maybe you can explain it a different way to try to make it a little bit clearer for the listeners who I didn't adequately level set. And then you can also maybe talk about, you know, there's one thing in terms of HUD calculating numbers, another thing for what the qualifying, you know, tenants income is likely to be, or at least some of the concerns or opportunities. And I did want to actually put a plug in here for Thomas Stagg. Uh, our partner, Thomas Stagg, has an income limits working group, and he is one of the tasks that he's going to be looking at in the coming uh, weeks and months ahead is how this interaction between inflation, ACS estimates, and the three-year three growth factor could it be affecting income levels in the coming years. If you want to know more about that income limits working group, just shoot Blair or me an email. Everything I know about AMI calculation comes from Thomas Stagg. So hopefully I can do him some justice. You are not the, alone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are many in that category. Right. So the way I, I always think about, you know, how does inflation show up in the AMI calculation is the, it's the actual formula itself. The, obviously, the first way is, as you said, it's that, that inflation adjustment of the three-year-old data. And then I think about it, but it also shows up in the year-over-year -year increase that I would see from like 2019 to 2020, for instance, for, the, for next year. You know, that is the inflation impacting the individuals or the median income. That's the way I like to think about it. Um, but of course, and as you, you say, there's, there, the reality is that a tenant or a prospective tenant's income may not 
be matching median income growth. Let me actually interject before you talk about the tenants, just when you gave the example of 2019 to 2020, 2018 to 2019 or something might be a better example, because as you know, 2020, because of COVID, we don't have good AC, we don't have good American community survey data. (laughs) That's a a fair point. That itself is is another whole area that Thomas Stegg's Income Limits Working Group is working on. I don't want to go sideways on this uh, podcast, but I'm sure there's a listener or two that heard your example of 2019 to 2020 and thinking, but, but, but <laughs> going this. to throw that but in there, uh, yes. uh, hopefully by 2021, we'll be back to being able to have uh, good data collection. But anyways, I didn't want to uh, get you off track. Please go back and talk about, you know, it's one thing to, ha- it's one thing to have these maximum rent levels. Now talk about what happens, uh, what the variables are at the tenant level. Sure. And thanks for that. It was a very good point to make about 2020. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that foreshadowing for next week. Yes. But tenant earnings. So there, you know, then there's the reality of what the tenant is actually earning. Um, and again, you know, earlier I said about, you know, CPI is that basket of goods. Well, now I'm going to make the point that tenants do buy food and tenants do buy used cars and tenants do buy fuel. Um, so the impact on inflation on them is actually a little less muddled than it is for developers and property managers. Managers. For tenants, inflation tends to hit living costs before it hits wage increases. And that's worsening an economic pinch on, on lower income households. So that's a very real thing to consider in this process. And right now, currently, a payroll is increase, increases are, is, is trailing inflation. I made the point earlier that we have the highest inflation in 40 years. We have the highest wage increases in 20 years. Now, that's good news for the wage increases in highest in 20 years. But compare it to the inflation highest in 40 years, we see that we're losing some purchasing power. And that's happening at the same time that you and I drive down the road and we see McDonald's signs begging for people to come and work at, at wages that, that are higher. Um, you know, that's continued good news for these lowest in, uh, income cohorts. Uh, recent data, uh, economic data, post-Great Recession seemed to suggest that the lower income earners were at least keeping pace with inflation. Uh, Many economists noted that there's a significant positive change from years prior. However, this data is fraught with noise because we know the 2021 period was affected by large amounts of government payments. Um, And I think there's a real question that we have to to ask ourselves and we have to think about is what's the economy going to return to? We hope it can turn it re- continues to, to show that in income for the lower economic uh, cohorts, we don't know. Again, you know, as the limits go up, will the tenants be able to afford it? Um, we're going to talk some more about this and again, foreshadowing our podcast next week. But that's a real question that my clients are asking. This differential between max rents and what tenants can actually pay and what tenants are actually able to pay. So thank you for that sort of overview, that discussion, a pretty critical question. And, you know, a lot of listeners will be underwriters, developers, syndicators, investors. Given this question about, you know, how area median incomes might rise and the more significant question of to what extent will the income of lower wage workers you know, keep pace such that they can afford, you know, the increasing rents. What advice do you have for me when I go and I do my underwriting? I think it's the, the time-tested old advice that, you know, local characteristics matter. You know, where do these tenants work? Are inflationary increases uh, 
is it reasonable to expect inflationary increases? Um, if a property is dependent upon tourism jobs, they're in a different situation than one dependent upon, say, construction jobs. Those things, local uh, issues matter. I think another thing that we're hearing more of, there's a broad spectrum of outcomes for tenants. We are in a housing, affordable housing crisis. We know there's a significant amount of demand for affordable housing. A lot of property managers are facing is the fact that despite increases in the uh, max rents, they have tenants who can't afford to pay max rents. And so they have tenants in place who can't afford to pay max rents. However, a new property could open up and fill up immediately with tenants paying max rent because of this excessive demand. So you have a, this dichotomy in the marketplace where some properties may not be achieving max rents, but that doesn't mean that a new property opening across the street won't be able to simply because of this robust demand for affordable housing. Again, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about that next week because that's, that's a, a real issue when reading markets and when an underwriter is reading a market, um, they may see that and, and that could give someone a pause of, well, wait a minute, how do I know that max rents are achievable? when I see this happening. So that's an important characteristic or important phenomenon that we're seeing right now. You know, I am looking forward to the podcast next week to dig a little bit deeper in a lot of those sort of issues, because this has definitely been the, the last year plus a really unique period to try to assess local markets from a market demand perspective. But one thing I want to make sure on the revenue side we touched upon, and once again, we need to do this really briefly, is utility allowances. Because I mentioned how you know HUD will release the max income and rent numbers, and then they have to be adjusted for a utility allowance. So that's a deduction, if you will, from the gross rent. And then the question becomes, okay, how is that deduction affected by inflation? Maybe you could share you know some brief thoughts, but the utility allowance question is really a complex question, which we can't go into too much detail here. I think it is a complex question, but I, the way I'm conceiving of it in my head is it's almost a double delay um, because, as I said earlier, utility increases are going to be delayed. Um, but then there's going to be a second delay as utility allowances are adjusted, as utility audits are, are processed through. So I think that I view it as a double delay in terms of, of the impact of the utility allowance. Right, which, you know, that first delay the delay in the utilities rising in the charges to the users, that delay benefits both the tenant and the land. Once the utilities do go up, such that the tenant's actually paying higher utilities, until the utility allowance gets adjusted, the tenant's facing higher uh, utilities, but not seeing uh, the adjustment to, or an allowance for the adjustment to their rent. And in that case, it's uh, adversely affecting the tenant only. So it will be interesting to see to what extent utility allowances get updated more quickly in the coming years. It is something that, you know, if I'm a landlord, I'd be thinking about in the context of operating these properties. So looking at this broad, property owners and managers uh, want to be comfortable that their expenses won't be growing at a faster rate than their revenue, obviously. And we do lots of projections where we project out, you know, income and expense growth sort of over time. And traditionally, the income limits for tax rate properties have increased slightly faster than operating expenses, although that gap has been small. Both have been around 3% annually. And a lot of the projections that we run obviously end up showing 3% growth in rents and 3% growth in expenses when you're underwriting for an equity investor. 
if you're underwriting for a lender or a state agency or something else, you can have different growth rates because they're more focused on the stress testing as opposed to what they think the more likely outcomes are. But something that you've done a lot of work on, I thought it would be worth touching base and getting your thoughts, is the Great Recession. And you've done a lot of work around analyzing the effect of the Great Recession on tax credit properties. And that was the last time that we saw operating expenses actually growing at a notably higher rate than rents. So what lessons do you take from the Great Recession that maybe we could be applying here? I think in general, it's, it's, you can watch the lag in that data process through the Great Recession. Um, I, I think there's a real difference between the Great Recession and what we're facing now because the Great Recession happened with a, with a lower in, inflation issue. So that, that was an aspect of it that's different. But at the beginning of the recovery, right when we felt that the, the economy was growing out of the recession, you weren't seeing that in the AMI changes because there was that three-year lag. And so you were seeing expenses outpace revenue increases. And then as it matured, uh, the, those, those increases in real income happened. Um, and all of a sudden you saw the revenue started to outpace the expenses a little bit. And as we matured, they started to come back together again. And we saw that properties could, in a little bit more robust revenue environment, they could make up for some expenses that they may have put off. Uh, they may have put off some repairs and maintenance in more lean years. And you saw that being accommodated in the later years. And it's kind of funny. It's like you could watch this ripple through the years, but at the end of the day, it ended up being at three and three over the 10-year period. So it, it was kind of uh, one of those things where, you know, a lot of angst to get to the, the answer, but it, it was where we expected. Right, right. Well, certainly when you do a forecast of three and three, you don't think every year is going to be three and three. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It, it's a little bit, but it's also something to keep in mind because, you know, I think when you look at the more recent years, maybe more significant area median income increases in a lot of areas, you know, folks can look at that and say, boy, you know, incomes and revenues are rising a lot faster than expenses. And you have to, as you point out, think of the longer term, think of the 10 or 15 year horizon and how there are periods of time where expenses are rising faster than income. And when you're looking at it from an underwriting and a policy perspective, you need to be looking at the increases on average over time, not any uh, given year. So Blair, thank you very much for sharing your insight. Uh, as our listeners certainly can tell by listening to this podcast, you're a great expert in these areas and there's also a lot that we don't know about the inflation rate. <laughs> if we knew what inflation was going to be, you know, we'd be making, we would be doing what we're doing here. So I think the uh, most important thing I think for our listeners to take away uh, from this uh, podcast is we don't know what the inflation rate is going to be going forward. It could be a short-term trend or it could be endemic, which obviously makes it difficult to plan. But I think you can't plan on it being a short-term trend such that you'd be severely damaged if it turned out to be more endemic. And we do hope that our discussion today does help our listeners start considering how inflation might affect the properties or investments uh, that they own, investments they've made, properties that are investors are thinking of making, and properties you know in the process of development. I do think you have to run your projections with a greater, more expansive stress testing to take some of these broader variables or potential changes uh, into account. So Blair, there's going to be some listeners, I'm sure, that want to reach out to you for more information. So if you could share your email address. Thanks, Mike. It's Blair, B-L-A-I-R dot Kinser, K-I-N, 
C-E-R at Novaco.com, N-O-V-O-C-O.com. Great. Thank you, Blair. Please stay around for our off-mic section. To our listeners, please be sure to tune in to next week's episode of Tax Row Tuesday. As Blair and I have been foreshadowing in the course of this podcast, Blair is going to be back and he's going to discuss how the COVID pandemic has affected investors and lenders' view of various markets and property types. The pandemic has generated an abundance of unique property and market level data that needs to be analyzed and sorted. And more important, there's a lot more noise. So investors and lenders are facing greater challenges, separating the signals from the data, from the noise, from the data. And during our podcast, we'll discuss some of the noise that Blair is saying, as well as ways to identify the signals. So this podcast next week will be of particular interest to underwriters, of course, but also developers and managers of tax credit properties that will be dealing with uh, a number of underwriters. You can make sure that you're notified of that episode in each week's episode by following or subscribing to the Tax Prep Tuesday podcast. One way to do that is to go to www.novaco.com podcast, where you can subscribe to and stream the show on our website. Another way is you can follow or subscribe to Tax Prep Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to uh, share a review and, and rate the podcast. It helps others find the podcast. Now, I'm pleased to reach our off-mic section, where listeners can get some off-topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. So, Blair, one of my uh, common questions I love to ask guests of the podcast has to do with goal setting and ways in which the guests set and pursue goals. So I'll ask you, how do you set and pursue goals? I, I, we talk, we saw this and I, I kind of uh, wondered how I'd answer this because I've never really been a goal setter. I've always, you know, we always have our budgets. We always have these goals out in front of us, but I've always been more of a, of, okay, I have my goal and, but I want to focus on it daily. You know, what do I do daily to impact my goal? So if my goal is to, you know, have five new clients by the end of the year, I, I generally don't think about how to get those five clients. What I think about is what's the next best thing for me to do this morning if I want to add clients. And sometimes that's picking up the phone and calling somebody. Sometimes it's hitting a deadline that I already have in front of me. Um, so I generally think about it as almost a, a daily exercise in, in today, what do I do to be a little bit more short-term <laughs> than, <laughs> than uh, long-term in that thought process? No, I like that. It shows that you're more uh, action oriented. <laughs> I don't want to, I'm not going to find the 10 next things I'm going to do. I want to do this one thing that can exactly. help me get my goal. So another question I'd like to ask is what type of career advice I guess have for someone beginning a career in their field. And obviously we have, you know, valuation experts as well as accountants and the rest as guests on the podcast. So what advice would you give someone beginning in your career? Learn. It's one thing that I've, I've really liked about my career is the fact that, if, you know, you approach it with an open mind, you approach the opportunities with, with an aggressive leaning into the learning aspect of it. You know, you and I have, have, have you know, tripped into some business lines just, just because we were open to what's next. I, I like that about uh, this career path. And I think that's what I would recommend for anyone is that, that desire to learn, desire to be open. Right. Thank you for that. The last question, we spent a lot of time in the 
course of this podcast talking about the pandemic and the impacts. And next week's podcast, we'll be talking about the pandemic and some of the noise it's creating around local markets and how underwriters can sort through and filter out the noise to find the signals. But I was wondering what professional lesson did you learn from the pandemic? And it can't be Zoom related. No, because I haven't learned anything Zoom related. I'm still, I'm still messing up Zoom on a daily basis. I'll go back to the the pursuing the goals thing. Uh, I really, it, it kind of doubled down on me. It's a daily issue. Um, you know, learning from the pandemic that I want to focus daily on the simple things, the what's next. I don't want to pop my head up and get confused or get uh, distracted by the bigger things that may be beyond my control. Um, that I would, I, I think it's also kind of uh, softened me a little bit and, and, and made me, you know, a little bit more forgiving of myself and of others and be a little bit more patient with myself and others. Um, because you can sometimes raise your head up and, you know, get a little bit distracted and get a little bit panicked by, oh my gosh, what, you know, what does this mean? What does that mean? Um, I think we all can feel that. So going back to my first, you know, how I pursue goals, it's on a daily basis. And this just re reconfirmed that for me. I really like the emphasis on the daily basis. You know, the, you know, the, you talk about a one mile uh, run starts with that first step. <laughs> exactly. You're a runner. So I guess you apply your, the way which you run to your goals. Yeah. You would never run five miles if you felt the way you did the fifth mile. You always start with that first step. <laughs> so thank you again, Claire. And to our listeners, I'm Mike Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.